Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, as we embark on a new series. And uh, it, it is appropriate to do that during Advent, because uh, Advent, again, is about the expectation of the coming of the Messiah. And so it's about that gospel hope that uh, the video spoke about, not a, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope, I wish, I wish, but a, a, a true expectation uh, placing our faith in the hope of Christ's uh, first coming for those before that happened and for us in his second coming and a trust in his salvation. Well, let's read the first four verses of Luke's gospel, this little introduction, this little dedication, and, uh, and then we will spend some time considering it together this morning. Let's read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word from Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. We thank God for his word. May he... Write its truth upon our hearts, even now. Well, I uh, always point out, especially for those who are newer, that when we begin a new series, uh, you'll have a, a handout every week um, with uh, notes, places to take notes and uh, outlines, and sometimes there's be fill in the blanks, and sometimes there won't, but it'll be uh, something different. And then I encourage you to keep these um, some people three hole punch them and put them into binders, and then if you take your own notes, in your own uh, study during the sermons, and then maybe even doing some study on your own, and you write them here, uh, by the time you're done, um, because we'll go through the whole book, you'll have a, a, little, a little binder that'll be your own personal little note commentary on uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so, uh, and uh, um, we can, if you miss a week uh, for illness or vacation or something like that, we'll try to have these available. And I, I even think John Paul is starting to put them up in the notes on Facebook or YouTube, which one of those? On the podcast feed. Um, but you should be able to get that from our website. Or we'll, we're going to add. We're going to. We're working on adding all that stuff to it. So hopefully there'll be a place uh, with hope. There will be a place uh, that you can go and download those. But we can also print you one uh, here. Um, just let me know, and I, I can print you one out, or I can email you a PDF of it as well if you miss a week, so you don't have a, a gap in your commentary. Well, what's happening in in Luke? Paul had a second missionary journey. And on that second missionary journey, Paul ends up in Troas. And um, he was perplexed in Troas because doors of ministry were closed to him everywhere. And he didn't know which way to turn. The ancient city of Troy was not far away. But uh, Troas was a place where people dreamed dreams. It was kind of known for a place of, of where dreamers would go to set off on expeditions and explorations. It was a crossroads. You could go east into Asia Minor and further into Asia and Persia. You could go west and north into Greece and Europe. And so Paul was there. There were memories of marching men and wars and Helen and the Greeks the Trojan horse of, of, uh, of uh, antiquity. And so Paul there, not knowing where he was gonna, what he was going to do, where he was going to go, he, he slept, and in his sleep he had a dream of the world of nearby Macedonia and Greece. And uh, Macedonia at that time was uh, all of kind of, uh, not the islands of Greece, but the land of Greece and into you know, what would become Yugoslavia, and now there's northern Macedonia and Serbia and Croatia and sort of those areas. And he dreamt of those areas, and and those thoughts ruled his dreams, and he saw in his dream a Greek man, a man from Macedonia, a European, saying, come and and help. Come over and help us. And Paul wakes and realizes that the reason the doors had been closed for him in Troas is because God had desired for him to go to uh, Europe, to go to Greece. And so he knew what to do. And Paul's assurance was soon confirmed 
Because whom should Paul see next but a man from Macedonia in the flesh and someone that he seemingly already knew, no less our own Dr. Luke. He was a, uh, perhaps a, a, a friend from his earlier days in Antioch. That seems to be where, um, where Luke is from, Syrian Antioch. And what's interesting about Luke is we know very little about him, really. We know snippets. And most of what we know about who Luke is and what he did are found in what we call the we passages that begin in Acts 16, Acts chapter 20, 21, 27, and 28, uh, where Luke changes from they did things to we did things, showing us that, well, at some point, Luke is now with the Apostle Paul on this missionary journey. And we have, in three other places, Paul mentions him by name in Colossians 4, 2 Timothy 4, and Philemon uh, verse 24. And in Acts 1 to 3, he identifies himself as the author of the Gospel of Luke that we're going to be studying and the book of Acts. It's there in the Colossians passage in Colossians chapter 4 that Paul describes him as a healer, a physician, a doctor. And it's clear uh, that he had been a, a, a companion of the Apostle Paul. And what's also clear is he was highly educated. Um, that's because of the quality of the Greek there. And uh, you can't even take my word for it because I don't know Greek well enough to know the quality of one's Greek. Um, but, you know, we'll call them scholars who know Greek. We'll look at the Greek of Luke's writings and say it's of a, uh, of a higher quality. The grammar and the, uh, the word choice is of a, of a higher degree than almost any other portion of the New Testament. And so... He was highly educated. His allusions and references to and quotations of ancient classical and Hellenistic Greek authorship is found. I'll try to point some of these out as we go through the, the, the book. But there are allusions and kind of winks at everyone from Homer to Aesop to uh, uh, Epimenides and Euripides and Plato and Aratus. Um, so he was very familiar with ancient Greek literature and, and uh, probably from his schooling. Now, he joined Paul at least at Troas, but remained at Philippi until Paul goes back there some six or seven years later toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey. And he accompanies Paul to Jerusalem, seems to have remained in Palestine during the time that Paul is imprisoned in Caesarea. Um, he took advantage, no, no doubt, of this period to continue his personal investigation of the gospel story, interviewing people in Jerusalem who had walked with Jesus, who had seen the crucifixion and the resurrection appearances of Jesus and, and uh, others who had been raised from the dead after the time of Jesus' resurrection, and uh, maybe had opportunity to interview other apostles at that time. We also know that he had a familiarity with matters relating to ships and the sea, and some people have inferred that he had been at one time a ship's physician, that he had used his education to do that because he seems familiar with those things as well. He is likely to have been a native of Antioch, and some people think that he was, in fact, a brother of Titus. Now, we don't know that. That comes from church tradition. It may or may not be true. Um, and, in fact, there, was a, you know, there are relics of Luke, that you, you know, but there's relics of everybody. That's every, if, every, if there's a name in the Bible, there's some church over in Europe that has that guy's like big toe in a case somewhere. right? So they're, it's, they're, everywhere you go, they're like, this was... Matthew's third knuckle, and you're like, okay, and there'll be some little old lady bowing at it or something. Uh, clearly not something we would recommend or condone, but they're all around, and there are, but there is supposedly, I forget where it is, uh, the large portion of the body of, of Luke buried, and they actually did DNA uh, testing on it and found that it's Syrian in origins, which would, which would line up if that is his body, which again, may or may not be, but it would line up with the idea that he maybe grew up in and around Antioch of Syria. And uh, so by the time, um, and, and by the way, he also, he isn't named in Philippians 4.3, but there's a statement there about someone who is a true yoke fellow, uh, translated some different ways, of Paul <coughs> that he addresses in, in his letter to the Philippians. And because uh, Luke had been in Philippi for a, a long time, some people think that maybe he is that true yoke fellow whose name isn't mentioned in Philippians. Whatever the case is, he was a friend of Paul to the very end even to Paul's death, and he was a fantastic writer. <clears throat> even though he himself was not an apostle, he was associated with apostles. And so the Gospel of Luke, as I mentioned earlier, like the Gospel of Mark, we could almost consider the Gospel of Peter, because much of what Mark is writing is, comes from the testimony of Peter. 
the Gospel of Luke, which is fascinating because Luke himself, most likely a Gentile, again, somewhat debated, we don't know for sure, but seems to be a, a Gentile, we'll talk more about that in a second, <clears throat> writing probably to a more Gentile audience, in particular this man Theophilus, who seems to have been a, a Roman official of some kind, someone of some importance. Um, his gospel is, we could consider it almost the gospel of Paul, that Paul, along with the other sources that he would have interviewed, uh, Paul gives him theological insight here in, in the gospel of Luke. And so Paul, the, the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, may be the kind of the major, along with Mark's writing and others, the major source for, for Luke in his gospel, potentially to the Gentiles. He has a, um, an interesting way of writing because by the time that Luke writes his gospel, the gospel was rapidly spreading. And this is where we have to distinguish between what we mean by the words gospel, right? Because we have the gospel, which is, gospel just means good news. It means the good news of the, of the story of Jesus. That's the gospel, the good news of the coming of Messiah. So when we tell people the gospel, we're telling them the message and story of Jesus, how we can have forgiveness of our sins and everlasting life through a relationship with Jesus Christ, through repenting of our sins and placing our faith and trust in Jesus alone to save us. So that's, the, that's what the gospel is. But when we talk about the gospels, kind of capital G gospels, we're talking about the four books that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels because in those, they tell the story of Jesus. They tell us the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So they themselves are not the gospel, but the gospels tell us the story of the gospel. So it's kind of confusing, I understand. But that's what they are. And within that, we have two groups. We have one group called the synoptic gospels, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we call them synoptic because they, they sync. They're, they're much alike. They have a lot of the same stories. They have a similar structure, a similar feel about them. They're not like modern-day biographies by any sense of the imagination. There's not as a uh, robust commitment to telling a story in exact chronological order, and so the different gospel writers <clears throat> orient their material differently based on their um, emphases, their theological desires to share, and their audiences. And so uh, this is why there have been attempts to harmonize the gospels, to figure out uh, which events are the same, which are different, and, and uh, oh, this story in Matthew is the same one here in Luke, and which ones are, are, are unique to the, to the three Gospels, and so that happens. And then John is kind of its own thing. You have the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John. And when we study John, of course, you saw very easily it was the last written. It was so different than the other Gospels, focusing way more on theological truth and um, kind of cosmic view of the Gospel than the synoptics. But Luke finds itself as one of these synoptics. And by the time he writes, the gospel is spreading around the Roman Empire. Paul marched boldly into city after city. Everywhere he went, he left converts and churches that were fired up with his own passion for souls, for the lost, and for the, the glory and worship of the risen Christ. And as a result, there were Gentile converts beginning to pour into the church. This caused issues we see in the, gospel, in, the, in the book of Acts, which is really Luke and Acts are a, are a pair. They go together. And uh, in Acts, we see that there has to be a council called in Jerusalem to talk about how do we deal with all of these Gentiles? What do we do with them? How do we incorporate them into the church? Do they have to go through Jewish rites like circumcision and all these things first? Do they have to become Jewish converts first before they become uh, followers of Jesus, followers of the way, become members of, of the Christian community? And it was determined that he didn't, uh, that uh, now the gospel call was out to everybody. And it was faith in Jesus Christ that made you a part of the church, not uh, becoming Jewish uh, as a kind of prerequisite. So as a result of all of this, the massive Gentile push into the church, there was presumably a need for some authentic version of the gospel to be written in a way that would captivate the minds and hearts of Gentiles in the Roman Empire. Stylish Greek is what's used in, in uh, Luke. I will try to point it out as best I can because um, it doesn't always make its way into our English translations. But he, he uses stylish flourishes in his vocabulary and in his writing. And he bases what he tells upon careful and a systematic investigation of the facts. And, of course, Luke ultimately was the Holy Spirit's choice to write the gospel. So not only is he careful in his own study, not only is he... 
thinking about the words he's going to use to try to captivate the hearts and minds of his readers, but also, of course, he's inspired by God uh, to do so. He has artistic flair, and he produces two of the most beautiful books in the world, full of compassion, inspired by the Spirit of God. Now, if we ask the question to people walking down the street, your average uh, person who knows the Bible but doesn't you know, study it or or maybe even most Christians in churches, if we just ask the question, not at the beginning of a, of a study of the Gospel of Luke, but just randomly, if we asked you which writer contributed the most to the New Testament, most people would probably say what? Paul. And that's because he wrote so many letters, right? We have so many books that are written by him. But it would actually be wrong. By word count, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. 27.5% of the New Testament is written by Luke in just Luke and Acts. Because Luke is the longest of the Gospels. Acts is pretty long itself. He writes more than Paul. He writes more than the Apostle John. He makes up the majority, well, not the majority, but he makes up a uh, plurality of your New Testament text. And um, so it's quite interesting, which is also fascinating because he has a distinction. If he is not Jewish, he's the only non-Jewish writer in, of the New Testament. Again, he comes from Antioch, maybe Philippi, and then had been gone to... He definitely ended up in Antioch at some point. Um, but a lot of people think Syrian Antioch. And when we read Luke's gospel, we discover that he either explains or doesn't mention at all particular Jewish customs which Gentiles would not have understood. So this is what leads us to believe he had a, a largely uh, Gentile, Roman, Greek uh, audience. This is, of course, in contrast to a gospel like Matthew, for instance, who wrote seemingly in the first place for Jewish people to tell them about who their Messiah was. And Matthew writes in such a way that assumes his readers will understand the significance of Jewish customs and rituals. He doesn't ever explain them. He mentions them assuming you're going to know them. Each gospel has a set of distinct theological emphases, themes that it wishes to communicate to its readers. And those themes help tie the gospel together. And they emerge as we consider the, the flow of the story from one episode to another. And in Luke's case, these big themes, overarching themes, unite the gospel and even carry over into the book of Acts. Luke is a historian, but he's also a theologian, and he cares deeply for the truths that Jesus taught and that guide the church. So let me just give you some of those themes that, that we will see. Some of them are not unique to Luke's gospel, but they're certainly uh, prominent in the gospel. The first of those is salvation. Right? We should expect nothing less from a book called the Gospel of Luke. The new age introduced by Christ was the age of salvation. The reason Christ came was to die for the sins of his people, to become the atoning sacrifice on the cross so that the sinners could repent and believe, finding salvation, receiving forgiveness of their sins, inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom of God. And all of this language is found all throughout Luke and Acts and describe the gospel, the good news that he intends to proclaim throughout his writings. Jesus' saving purpose is evident from the very beginning of the gospel, that at his birth, the angelic host tells the shepherds that a Savior is born to you, the Messiah, the Lord. That's in chapter 2. When Zacchaeus comes to faith, the scene is summarized as the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's in chapter 19. We'll get to that in 2025. Um, the spread of the good news throughout Luke constitutes the message of salvation going out into the world. In Acts chapter 5, when Peter and the apostles refuse to uh, stop witnessing about Jesus, they tell the authorities that God exalted Jesus to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And that whole theme of salvation, if there's a theme verse of Luke, I don't know that there really is, but if we can get close enough in Luke 24, 47... Luke 24, 47 says, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name to all nations. That kind of constitutes a theme of Luke and Acts together. And each of these sums, each kind of episode in the story that Luke tells us gives this a major emphasis in Luke's writings. Did Jesus die for the sins of, of people who would, by faith in him, find salvation? And this was not just for the Jews, but of course for the Gentiles as well which is there's an emphasis of that in, in the universal nature of, of Jesus' call to repentance and faith and belief was not just to Jews but to Gentiles. It's in Luke, but it's especially seen in Acts as the whole second half of the book of Acts begins to talk about 
the um, missionary journeys of Paul and the outreach and the growth of the church in the Gentile world. In the missions of Luke 9 and 10 and often in Acts, preaching is also the means by which this message of salvation goes out to the nations. So salvation, a major emphasis that we're going to, of course, see in, in Luke as we see in the other Gospels. A second sort of um, major theme is that of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Jesus is, of course, the core not only of Luke's Gospel, as is expected, but also of the book of Acts. And in a real sense, one of the primary things Luke's want, Luke wants to answer for us is, is who is Jesus? Who is he? And, and how do we respond to him? At the announcement of Jesus' birth, he is presented as the Son of the Most High, who would inherit David's throne and establish a never-ending kingdom. At his birth, the angel of the Lord proclaims him to be Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Throughout the infancy narratives, he is revealed as the greater prophet, greater than John the Baptist or the prophets of the Old Testament, who would inaugurate a new era of salvation. There was a great stress on the lordship of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. The suffering servant becomes the Lord of all, risen from the dead. He has power over nature in chapters 8 and 9. Powers over disease in chapters 4, 5, and 7. Power over death itself in chapters 7 and 8. And the cosmic powers of darkness are under his control in chapters uh, 4, 8, and 10. They all show him to be Lord over all of creation, including us. Not only prophet, not only royal messiah, but God's son and sovereign ruler over all of creation, king of kings and lord of lords. Which leads into the next theme, God's absolute reign over history and rule over all of history. Luke places a great stress on the history of salvation, God's rule over human history. As he controls history, brings salvation to the world. There is a word that shows up a lot in Luke, and it is, it's a really short word in Greek, dei, D-E-I, it was how we would spell it, I guess, in English. But it's the word must. Things must take place. They, they must happen. It's predominant in Luke, meaning that God has sovereignly predetermined his moves in the world to accomplish his purposes, and that they must happen just as God had said. And they must happen in the way that God had said, and just at God's timing. So Luke, in his writing, and pro is proclaiming all of God's plan as it is worked out in Jesus and in the life of the church. The coming of Christ, his ministry to the world, uh, the results of his coming, all ordained by God and acted out according to his perfect will and plan, especially his death and resurrection. The plan of salvation is part of this divine must that Luke will tell us about. And then there's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, for Luke, the Holy Spirit is the point of continuity between the life of Jesus and the mission of the church. That the Holy Spirit is the central figure appearing 17 times in the gospel, 40 times in the book of Acts. The Spirit is active in every part of Jesus' birth, we'll see. And again, it is resurrection. And in fact, we know theologically that the Holy Spirit is, is the empowerment of Jesus to do his ministry, to, um, to, to live out his life, to resist temptation, to do all the things that he does in his human life. And then the Holy Spirit gives the ability that... Christ had to heal and to, and to proclaim. He gives that to the apostles uh, after Pentecost and leads the, the apostles, identifying them with Jesus. So he's, the Holy Spirit is the connection between Luke and Acts. Um, Jesus promised the coming of the Spirit in his resurrection appearance, defined that his coming is power from heaven. That's how he describes the Holy Spirit's coming. So the disciples in the upper room in Acts chapter 1 constitute a, a small movement who are waiting in hope, even as we talked about earlier, for the power of the Spirit to come into the life of the church. And when that empowering presence arrived, he enables the apostles to begin this world-changing force that continues to this day, even here in Utah. And, and then a couple more themes. One is that of the community, the faith community. Whether it's the Messianic community in the time uh, before the church's birth, and then the church itself whenever Pentecost comes. When Jesus chose, uh, chooses the twelve in Luke chapter 6, he establishes a, a sort of a new community of the last days, and the, the twelve apostles sort of represent uh, the twelve tribes of Israel, the sort of a, a, a new birth of the, this community, intended by God's decree to populate this new kingdom of of God and take the world into the age of the new covenant through the death and resurrection of its Savior. The disciples are characterized by often misunderstanding all of this, of course, and their failure during the lifetime of Jesus, but then their 
new understanding through Jesus' retraining of them and his, after his resurrection and the Holy Spirit's work in them. He leads them. Um, and when the Spirit arrives at Pentecost, he inaugurates this messianic movement that becomes the church that covers the world with the gospel. It's at, still, at, uh, still going on. We're still living in sort of the, the, the end of Acts. The mess, uh, mission church is still continuing into the world. And we support that in places like Mexico and Ireland and France and Indonesia and, and more and more. In Acts, the church moves from evangelizing the Jewish people first in chapters 1 to 7, evangelizing the Samaritans, these kind of half-Jewish, half-Gentile um, uh, folks from the north in chapter 8, to evangelizing the nations in chapters 9 through 28. And Paul guides the church and provides the impetus for this new mission using not just his witness, but even opposition to the gospel by the Jewish leaders and by Roman uh, opposition. And uh, the more the Jews and Romans persecute the church, the more powerfully the gospel goes forth into the world. Another theme is that of worship and prayer, prayer and worship. Luke is often called the theologian of prayer because he shows Jesus at virtually every major event in his life deep in prayer in a, in a way, in a profound way that the other gospel writers don't. For instance, at his baptism in chapter 3, his choice of the 12 in chapter 6, Peter's confession and the first predictions of Jesus' uh, Jesus's suffering in chapter 9, at the transfiguration at the end of chapter 9, his death on the cross flows from his prayer at Gethsemane in chapter 22, three prayers and answers to prayer in chapter 23. And so in a very real sense, Luke turns the crucifixion from a scene of horror into a scene of prayerful worship. And the key passage on prayer is perhaps in chapter 11, First 13 verses that contain a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer that we say, the parable of the friend at midnight, which tells us how committed God is to answering the prayers of his people. And then in chapter 18, we have the parable of the persistent widow, which extols believers to persevere in prayer, to not give up in prayer. So there's lots of stuff about prayer that we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke. And then one last theme that I wanted to mention is the theme of the marginalized that shows up in Luke. And this may have come from him being a Gentile and feeling so blessed to have been received um, into the kingdom, even though he did what wasn't Jewish like so many of the early Christians were. But the marginalized in Jesus' ministry are really emphasized. Luke sees them and he wants to highlight Jesus' uh, impact upon them. Because Luke, again, is showing that the gospel is for all people. Luke especially singles out the forgotten social groups of the world, the poor and women in particular, and, and Gentiles. And the theme passage for Jesus' ministry drawn from Isaiah 61 states that the Spirit has anointed Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor and freedom to the captives, liberation of the oppressed. And we find this in Luke chapter 4. This establishes a pattern of concern for the entire gospel. Jesus was born as one of the poor, and he demands that disciples not only bring spiritual salvation through the gospel, but also use our resources to help one another and to alleviate suffering where we are able. That, uh, um, and this seems to be a, a, a theme throughout the gospel as well, that what God gives us we use for the benefit of others as opposed to hoarding it for ourselves. Luke emphasizes the position of women in the church. Three-eighths of the names uh, in Luke are those of women. Women become patrons of the apostles in chapter 8 official witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in chapters 23 and 24. And in the Jewish and even Roman worlds, women were, for the most part, restricted to the home and had little public impact. But in both Luke and Acts, they had a great impact on the Messianic community and on the church. Clearly, they were important resources, important people uh, in God's mission to the world. So there you go. There's just some themes that I hope you kind of keep in your mind uh, there's no test, but uh, keep those in your mind as we, as we journey through Luke and, and uh, maybe see. Um, you may have to do this after church on Sunday, but go back and say which of these themes was highlighted maybe in this week's passage. And uh, it would be an interesting exercise for you to do over the course of the study. Well, when we come to the first four verses, this prologue, what do we find? What do we find in these first four verses that really just introduce the book to us? They give us purpose statements and so forth. Well, the first thing that we see there is Luke's utter fascination with the gospel. Luke's utter fascination with the gospel. Perhaps more important at this beginning of the gospel is to see 
that at the heart of this gospel project, Luke really wants to understand it. He says in verse 1 that, you know, a lot of people, many have undertaken this. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, amongst the, the people there. And part of that fascination comes from expectancy, that these things didn't merely occur, happen, or get accomplished, but they, they, um, they have rather reached their fulfillment. And actually, that's probably a better translation than even, um, I think, the ESV and the, the New American Standard have accomplished among us, these things that have been accomplished for among, among us. The words there actually have, have a meaning of being fulfilled. Reached fulfillment, I think, is actually a really good way to, to translate that verse. These things that have come to their fruition in our presence. That these matters, he implies, are, are the very heart of what we think of as Old Testament prophecies coming to their fulfillment. The promises of predictions of the, uh, of the Jewish people from their very history, from their very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way until the end of Malachi have come to their fulfillment in the coming of the person of Jesus, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And uh, they have come to pass. And to see that generates a, an excitement. Um, also, this fascination, it's not peculiar to Luke himself because he says many people have, have sought to do this. A lot of people have attempted to write up accounts of these things. Now, who, who are the many? Do they include the other gospel writers? It's possible. It's most likely, especially Mark, that uh, Luke seems to have used as a source. But uh, Luke is writing between about 58 and 65. He writes uh, the book, Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. We kind of know the end point a little bit better because uh, surely Luke, having been such a close compatriot of the Apostle Paul, if he had um, written the book after the death of Paul, he likely would have included it in the, gospel, in the book of Acts. But the fact that his arrest and his imprisonments are in Acts. We know it had to be after a certain period of time, but it most likely was finished before his death. Otherwise, Luke would have included it. Uh, but, so it includes the Gospels. It includes those things that had happened. But likely lots of people wrote down things about Jesus, right? Uh, you wonder how many um, small accounts that, that weren't inspired by God, but that were just what people wrote down, portions of the life of Jesus, People that had been at a Sermon on the Mount who said, I heard Jesus say such and such, and maybe paraphrased a little bit of it. Who knows how many of these things, how many people wrote accounts of one sort or another? How many Christians wrote you know, primitive versions of gospel tracts to be able to hand out to others on broken pieces of parchment or leftover discarded pieces? How many people rehearsed three or four of Jesus' miracles that they had either witnessed or, or heard about? in order to explain Jesus to their non-believing friends and family. Many were drawn to this task by interest and preoccupation with the story of Jesus, and Luke counts himself one of those. Many have undertaken this to compile a narrative of what has been fulfilled, what has happened amongst us. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John had all seen Jesus and heard him preach, but Luke was the second-generation Christian. He could not give an eyewitness account of what Jesus had done in Galilee or Judea. He had to rely on the testimony of others to satisfy that curiosity. Uh, he was born too late and too far away, one commentator said, from the events to have observed what had actually happened. And yet he was fascinated by these events. They'd captivated something in his heart. Luke's not an apostle. And he didn't see Jesus on earth, but he had been converted through the ministry of some of those who had brought him the good news, which had been preached by others. He writes about some of these in his second book, in Acts. And as a result of his conversion, his life had been completely changed. And the tremendous difference that Jesus had made in him had transformed him in every way. And so that's why one of the characteristics of Luke's gospel is this emphasis on life-changing events. The message of salvation spoken to all people. A verbal message in words. A message that was needed, and even though few ordinary people could read, nothing was written of these events at the time, and the early church was living with the expectation that Jesus might return any minute to, step, to establish his kingdom and bring the, the culmination of all things. And so initially, they didn't write these things down so much. They probably wrote little bits down, and they shared these things with each other orally. But as times go by, and many of those who had personally seen and heard Jesus 
began to die themselves, and the return of the Lord had not yet come about, it became clear that much of the story of Jesus' ministry needed to be written down before it was lost in the lives of those who were dying. And this is why we see about a 20 to 30 year gap, really, before the beginning of the writing of a lot of the, the Gospels. So just as others had taken up the task, Luke tells us that he himself decided to write. And he says, the, the words in verse 3, it seemed good to me also. And again, the import of that in English is a little bit lost. Because it almost seems kind of ho-hum, the way that we have it in English. That it's almost as if Luke is saying, well, a lot of people are writing about it, so I thought, yeah, why not me? It seemed good to me to do it. That's not what he's getting at here. That's not what the language implies. He's saying many people have devoted themselves to writing down the, the awesome events that were fulfilled in, in our lifetimes, the, the coming of the Messiah. And it seemed like a good thing. Good in Greek culture was not, we use good just very flippantly. Ah, oh, that's a good thing. In Greek culture, this, it, it was a, a, a good thing. It was a thing worth doing. It was something that had enthralled him in a way that it seemed a, a right task to write these things down. There was an eagerness on, to pass on the gospel record. And I think it's easy for us to miss this note of fascination in this preface, that the whole story gave these early believers like Luke a desire to write and tell the story of Jesus. Not, not simply that this was an ancient prophecy being fulfilled, but it was Jesus himself who was so attractive to them in his ministry and what he did for them, that there was a wetting of their appetite, a stirring of their interest. They could not get over or past who Jesus is. And they wanted to share that with others. Now, this begs the question of us. Are we as fascinated with Jesus? Not that we're like Luke and need to write a gospel. We have the completed canon. We have the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But are you fascinated with the gospel so much that it would seem the right thing for you, that it would seem good for you to tell people about it? That's at the heart of Luke's message here. It's an evangelistic heart. It's not just a historian's heart. But we see that he wants Theophilus to have a certainty in his faith. He wants people who read this to know about this man named Jesus. Are you as captivated by him? Are you as enthralled by him? Does it seem good and important enough for you to tell people about Jesus as it was for Luke? I pray that we take Luke's example. Not only did Luke have a fascination with the gospel, but secondly, Luke, well, he had a passion for the gospel. And these things are connected, of course, but he had a passion for the gospel, and that passion shows itself in his desire to get it right. It's a passion for accuracy. What does he say in verses 2 and 3? Many have undertaken to do this. And he says in verse 2, Just as those who from the beginning, the beginning of, of the church, the beginning of the coming of Christ, were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So just like so many, like the apostles and those that walk with Jesus, delivered this message to us from their very own eyewitness accounts, people like Peter, people like John, Matthew, and, and others, it seemed good to me to do this as well, even though I'm not one of those who had been with Jesus from the beginning. It seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some time. He's been watching, he's been listening, he's been asking questions. And it seemed good for him to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. There's a, there's a, a desire to know it, a desire to share it, and to share it in an orderly way, a passion for accuracy. They passed on their story just as the original eyewitnesses of the gospel accounts had delivered them to them. They didn't add things. They didn't make things up. There was a concern for getting the details right. They refused to lie or to exaggerate what came to them from these eyewitnesses. And Luke himself says that with painstaking research. He followed all things closely for some time before he writes. You can imagine, among other things, that when Luke was with Paul in Jerusalem in Acts 21... Perhaps in Israel during Paul's two-year confinement in Caesarea in Acts 24, that he could well have interviewed any number of those original eyewitnesses and confirmed their testimonies, corroborated them together. Now some might object that since Luke and others were you know, part of the church, that they had an agenda. Did Luke have an agenda? Well, sure he did. He had an agenda to win people to Jesus. But the assumption is that if they had an agenda, then that agenda would cause them to sort of soup up the church, 
soup up the story of Jesus, add details, make it sound a little bit better in order to make their account more convincing. Well, is that what happened? That's what scholars like Bart Ehrman and others would tell you, that these accounts were just embellished. Of course, Bart Ehrman would probably tell you Luke didn't write it, that it was written maybe 100 years later, um, even though there's no evidence of that. The biblical writers dared not do that. Why? Well, in fact, there were lots of eyewitnesses around in the first century, and not all those eyewitnesses were pro-Jesus, and even the ones that were pro-Jesus might resist you making up details that, in fact, they didn't see happen. In the first century, there were lots of eyewitnesses, both hostile and friendly to Jesus, many who opposed the apostles, and if the early Christians, whether in written accounts or in their verbal witness, had exaggerated or twisted the truth, they would have been exposed by the anti-Jesus coalition, and they might have also been called to account by those who were eyewitnesses and says, that's not the way it happened. They're writing within the lifetime of eyewitnesses. They had to be careful with their claims. So it's simply not true that evangelism compromises historicity. Rather, evangelism demands accuracy, right? Lest they be, you know, called up to account, right? Fake news was a thing even back then, right? <laughs> it's wrong. Um, sorry. Uh, Jesus was huge. Um, but the church had a care and a desire to have the truth be known, to face its claims. And this is all before even realizing that the Holy Spirit is doing this, but we accept that by faith. But Luke designed, he says, to write an orderly account. Not just an account, but an orderly account. And that phrase translates a, an adverb uh, that means uh, that it's a, a catechesis, where we get our word catechesis from, catechizing, where you work through something in order. How many of you did a catechism as a kid, or some folks in our church do them with their kids? It's an orderly way of, of studying truth about God. And he says, that's what I wanted to write, an orderly account. doesn't imply necessarily strict chronology, but it implies order, that there was a thought behind it. Luke uses it in Acts 11, and it's translated in orderly sequence in some translations there. That's the idea here. But a coherent, connected, generally sequential account that what you could easily read and follow. Because again, Luke is after readability, and that is important, because he knows that both truth and packaging matter. He wants it to be true, and he wants it to be readable, and he wants it to grip people's attention, and that's why he uses the language that he does, tells the story the way he does. Truth is vital, but you can damage the truth if you don't make it attractive to people. So he doesn't write a boring gospel. He writes a true gospel, but he writes it with this flair again. And he mentions his sources, and like I said earlier, a lot of his understanding was based on his conversations, his interviews with people who had known Jesus, they had memorized his teaching, they had seen his miracles, they had stories to tell of his wisdom and his love and his power. And Luke surely studied Mark's gospel that was already been in circulation by this point, Mark, the shortest gospel, the most compact gospel. There are 320-ish of the 661 verses of Mark that are basically identically repeated in Luke. So about half of Mark is in Luke. He uses that as the basis and he fleshes that out. He adds to it from his, his research. He surely would have met people like perhaps Mary and the Lord's brothers before they died, the various apostles and the disciples, Philip the evangelist, Mary uh, Martha Lazarus perhaps. Who knows who he met and talked with and countless others whose names we don't know but who would have shared this companionship with Jesus or companionship with Paul. And then he would have heard from Paul as well, his memories of meeting with Jesus, perhaps in his, not in Jesus' earthly ministry, but in his post-resurrection appearances to Paul and the, the, the theology that he taught Paul. And then, of course, he would have received revelation and inspiration from the Holy Spirit to know what to put in the book and what not to put. Again, we don't know how much of that he understood at the time. It would have been uh, amazing to go back and ask him. 
but he had a passion to get the things right. And this is important for us to see. Because, again, you have a lot of critics of the Bible who would say that, you know, it's not true and the writers didn't care. They made up stuff. But we see how he, he, he felt it important for Theophilus, who he's writing to. We're going to talk about it in a second. He felt it important that he write an orderly account for him. That he didn't leave things out. But he also didn't add things in. He didn't make things up. Because he wanted him to have a certainty about what he, what he, what he had been taught. Not to bring doubt and confusion to him, but to tell him the truth of who Jesus was and what he did. Well, this brings us to the last point, and that is, what was Luke's purpose for the gospel? Well, again, it was to write an orderly account so that Theophilus might be certain. That's what Luke tells us there in verse three, second half of verse 3 and verse 4. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Now, I take Theophilus to be the real name of somebody, of an individual. May not, it could either have been his name, it was a common name in the day, but it could have also been a title for him because Theophilus simply means um, one who loves God or one who is loved by God. Theos, Theo, Theos, you know what we mean, Theodore, or Teddy. Their name means loved of God. It's the same name. Ador, Theos, Ador, Theodore, the one who loves God. So, I don't know, your teddy bears love Jesus. That's what I think it means. They're all saved. Um, Theodore Roosevelt. Leave that to you. Uh, But he writes to this guy. But it could also have been like a title for him. Because he didn't want to use his real name. One or the other. But he seems to have been a real person. Likely already a Christian who needed additional instruction. Or was uh, a very new Christian. And he seems to have been wealthy. A lot of people think that he was sort of Luke's benefactor, covering the costs of the, of the travel and the writing and the publishing of the, Luke, of the book of Luke. And his goal, again, was to use his accuracy and readability as the means to bring assurance and stability and certainty to the faith of this man. A Christian's assurance may come and go and can be affected by all sorts of things, but it will never begin to exist unless it is built on the firm foundation of the truth of the gospel. And that's what Luke wants to give to Theophilus. The purpose is that Theophilus and others may know with certainty the things they have been taught. There's, a, there's an apologetic air here. The words know and certainty frame these, the, this verse, saying, again, he wanted to write a trustworthy, orderly account of the gospel, that what Theophilus has heard is something not just of the mere events of the days of Jesus, but he has been told about salvation that has been offered through Jesus, this preached gospel that has been preached with power by the apostles and followers of Christ, the word which changed his life, and even so, he still, he has struggles, and he doesn't have a thorough grasp of all the facts. And that's what Luke seeks to, wants to seek to uh, inform him of. It's what he needs. And so whether any of us our new Christians have rudimentary knowledge of the, of the faith, or if we've been a Christian a long time, or if one of you is a, a non-Christian interested in what Jesus is all about, for any of us, the gospel is exactly what we need to be reminded so that we might have certainty of these things. And the reading of this book, written particularly with this guy Theophilus in mind, enables him to know with certainty these things. Luke places the word certainty actually at the end of the Greek sentence with some emphasis, with a long sentence, all of paragraph one, these four, you know, four verses is one sentence, I think, in Greek. And he basically says all of this, and he says, I have written all this, Theophilus, so that you might be sure, that you might be certain, that like many men of his day, this man, presumably brought up in paganism, had become increasingly uh, that this paganism had become increasingly meaningless throughout his life, and he felt a, a desire for truth, and he finds that. God captures him through the message of Jesus. And Luke says, this gospel that I'm writing is here to offer you certainty. Read what I've written, and you will see the facts on which Christianity is based. And you will find there something firm and solid and absolutely trustworthy, a, a sure foundation for your faith. And that's what we look for as we embark upon our own reading of the gospel. We embark on having a fascination with who Jesus is and what he has done. 
a passion for the, for the truth of his word and for, for the events of his life and for the meaning of his words. That we might share with others that passion and fascination we have with Jesus. And ultimately that we and those that we have the opportunity to encounter might be certain and more sure in their faith about who Jesus is and what he's done. Might we expect this gospel to lay deep in our hearts the foundation for deeper spiritual certainty in a world where everything is changed, everything is questioned from day to day. That we would, with the hymn writer, say, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Might we delve into Luke together with that heart and mind, pray toward that end, that we together and those that we meet might be sure and certain of the gospel which Luke proclaims. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your grace in our study. We ask for your mercy in our thinking on these things. And most of all, we ask for the ability to have certainty of the truth of your word and of, um, even as we will talk about that this evening, through the, the ways we can even see archaeological evidence for your word and how that encourages our hearts. But ultimately, Father, we want your Holy Spirit to give us an inward testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel that Luke presents, that we might see and hear and understand the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus so that we might be sure of the things that we've been taught, the things that we're hearing, that we might have a relationship with your Son that doesn't ebb and flow with the changing currents of culture, but that is rooted in the firm foundation of your excellent word. So help us to that end and be with us through this study as we look to see the, the long-expected Jesus come in the pages of Scripture before us. Help us now to sing of that truth, of that hope, of the expectation of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.